The day we took our daughter to college, we set up her room, we enjoyed a dinner out before we said goodbye, and then returned home to wait for that first phone call from her so that we could see how things were going. Many of you remember that experience. Some of you have recently had it. I held back from calling because I did not want to be the mom that was hovering from a distance. Her call came five days later. <laughs> As we talked, I asked questions and she answered. It was the usual update questions. And then she said, Mom, I've made a major decision. And in a split second, and some of you have had this experience, her entire life flashed before my eyes <laughs> as I'm wondering, oh my goodness, what has she decided? Hopefully it's wonderful news, but then maybe it's not. Oh no, what's happened? I internally prepared myself for whatever she might say, and I said, okay, what is it? She said, I want to change my name. What? <laughs> you want to change your name. And I'm sure the tone was something like that because it was not communicating curiosity because it made her say, and many of you have heard this said to you, Mom, calm down. <laughs> I want to be known by my middle name. Your middle name? which was actually a relief because in another split second when she said she was going to change her name, my brain went to all kinds of ridiculous name directions. <laughs> so I was actually grateful when she said that. She said, Mom, it's a good name. You, you gave it to me. I said, I know it's a good name, and there's a good reason I gave it to you, but, but can I ask why you want to change it? And she proceeded to explain that evidently the name that appears first on her birth certificate Catherine, which we have in fact called her for 18 years, we had no idea that it had been the most popular name for baby girls the year that she was born. And there were five Catherines on her dorm hall. And she said, I don't want to become confused with the others. I want people to know me as Macaulay because I want to be distinct. Because I want to be distinct. Now, surely... There was no harm in Catherine wanting to be called to be known as Macaulay. And there's no real harm in wanting to be distinct in that way. But I hope you will agree that I want to be distinct mirrors back to us exactly what God's word does in the opening pages of Genesis as to how we view ourselves and how we then relate to God. This fall, as you know, we've begun to understand the backstory of the grand and great redemptive story that God has designed and he has written that's all about bringing us back into relationship with him. I hope that you are beginning to understand that there has been a seismic breakdown in our relationship with him. And it all comes from our desire to be distinct, to be on our own, and to be independent of the one who has in fact created us and created us out of great love. And I say our story because the story of Adam and Eve, the story surrounding Noah and his family, and now the people who set themselves apart on the plain of Shinar with their own plan to build a staircase of heaven, it's our story that we are determined to live distinct apart from God. 
We're going to find, as we look at the Tower of Babel this morning, we're going to find that we are really able to receive. God wants us to have a much-needed corrective in our thinking. Join me, if you will, if you have a Bible, look at verses in, that chat in Genesis, verses 1 and 2, and then skipping down to 4. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now at first glance, it doesn't look like anything horrifically sinful or even evil has been done. The people just set out to be set apart, to build a life, and to build a tower. But it's going to give us a glimpse into what makes sin sinful. There are important things to notice here. You probably just skipped right over them as you read it. First, the people were determined to stay together in one place and to do whatever it would take to be safe and secure. That sounds pretty reasonable to me, but it was actually an act of disobedience. Three times previously in Genesis, God had commanded them to be fruitful and to multiply all over the earth. Why would they not want to obey that? A hint as to what we will see as we move through all of the redemption story in the coming months is this. God is always, always pushing his people to look outward, to multiply, to extend the news of his goodness and his love. But our struggle with sin is that we look inward toward building our own security for our own glory. Second, what did they really want? They knew what they wanted. They say they wanted a city. What they were really saying was that they wanted a home. They wanted a place to belong. They're going to build a tower that reached to the heavens. They wanted to do something significant. They wanted their lives to matter. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. And they will do whatever it takes to get it. What could be wrong with that? Think back to the early pages of Genesis. They had already been given all of those things by God himself when they were with him in the garden. In the beginning, God was their home. With their relationship with him came a deep sense of belonging. There was no need to build a tower to find their significance. It had already been given and was found from doing God's will. And they had a name. They had greatness that came from being sons and daughters of God and ruling side by side in his kingdom. Greatness indeed. But they had rejected God by doing everything they could to be distinct. And so now in their sin and their anxiousness, they are strategizing and going to great lengths to get those things back. Sin is our attempt to find in something or someone else what we lost when we determined to be distinct and to live apart from God. That's why they didn't just build a tower. It was to reach towards the heavens. 
Later in the passage, we'll find that the tower is called Babel, which literally means the gate of God. They were trying to get back something they once had in abundance, and so are we. With the ongoing effects, the sinful effects of the fall, we continue to find ourselves gathered, as it were, on the plain of Shinar, trying to reunite heaven and earth on our terms for our glory. We continue, continue to be haunted by the same questions and answers that arise from Babel. The spirit of Babel makes us think that we can build towers to heaven. We too want a city. We want a place to really feel safe, a group to feel like we really belong. We also want to be accepted by the right groups at school or in our community, or we strive really hard to have the right people, whoever we think they may be, to praise us and invite us to join in with whatever they may be doing. We also want security. We go to great lengths to try to guarantee that, don't we? And then something happens, whether it's a storm, an accident, a medical report, and we realize that our lives are really fragile after all. We so want our lives to matter. And we look around at what he's accomplished and what she's accomplished, and we compare ourselves to it, and we become overwhelmed with the feeling that whatever we have done just doesn't stack up. We want to be connected to greatness. A whole different sermon could be on that alone. What or who truly determines greatness? We just can't help ourselves with all these things, can we? Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that you are beyond the spirit of Babel's influence. However it looks for you, the temptation to self-glory and self-preservation, it is right on the surface for each of us. And I mean each of us. The longing, the yearning for that sense of belonging, security, significance, and greatness, none of those things are inherently wrong. Please make sure you hear that. None of those things are wrong. It's where we look for them, that is. You will simply be transformed in your life and your faith when you realize that every tower you build, every decision you make, Every relationship you have or have had is an attempt to regain something that God designed and desires to give to you himself. In our sin, we forget and don't believe that he is a good God longing to give us more than we could ever ask or think. Let's look at it again. Look at verses 5 through 7. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And the Lord came down. The people are trying to build up, and God says, let's go down. It's a statement that shows the magnificence, the glory, the transcendence of God, and how incredibly small and insignificant our efforts really, truly are. 
Did you hear that phrase that we also heard at creation? Come, let us. God together, God in all his completeness, who has been from the beginning driving all of creation, he now comes down to take a peek at what is the best efforts of mankind. And in his presence, whatever has been built can barely be seen. That should be humbling for us. I hope it is. All our efforts, the time, the energy, the resources that have been put into regaining what we have lost, when the time comes, God looks at what we have done, and it is but a tiny speck if it can be seen at all. Look again at those verses. He says, And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. In other words, every form of sin and evil is going to spring up from this self-declaration as to what they think they can do. Again, hear me on this. What they are looking for, security, significance, greatness, is not wrong. It bears repeating. It's important to understand this. Now they want to find it for themselves in their own way, by their own strength, so that they have the glory. Sin finds its root deep into my life and yours whenever we do something, no matter how large or small, by my will, in my strength, for my glory. You can do an incredibly abundant and good things in your life and yet be consumed with your own glory that comes from accomplishing those things in your own strength and ability. The greatness of our accomplishments what we have been able to do on our own strength, it is the badge of honor that we wear where we live. And we wear it well, don't we? The wickedness of sin does not start with an act of immorality or really any other action. It begins with the heart behind it. So let me ask you this. What's in your heart? In the core of your heart, there is either God's will or my will. To really get at what's going on, ask yourself the simple questions. Whose will am I living by, mine or God's? Whose strength do I draw on to meet the day, mine or God's? Whose glory am I most concerned about, mine or God's? And if you really think you don't know which it is, find the courage and ask a friend, ask a family member, ask a spouse, because they will know what is in fact guiding you. Look again at verse 7. In an instant, God invents new languages and people become completely confused with one another. Trying to communicate with someone who speaks another language may be challenging, but often if you're in those situations, there's a certain graciousness about it. I have no idea what you're saying, so let's just smile at each other. Where we really find it difficult is to understand those who sound just like we do. You have found yourself in a discussion or an argument with another, and you say or you even shout about your frustration of, I'm not being understood. And our sin keeps us from recognizing that the other person is experiencing the exact same thing with us. It's not just their problem, it's ours. You see, confusion reigns and keeps it at arm's length from one another. But 
It also keeps us from uniting in our agendas to live distinct from God and creating even more havoc. Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. How frustrating it must have been for the people that they did not complete what they set out to do. You have had that frustrating experience, no doubt. Sin simply left them with a tower of disappointment. They are are left with something that they have created that is not only incomplete, but it will not last. It will disintegrate slowly but surely right before them. That's the legacy of sin. It leaves crumbling towers of disappointment in our lives. God could have easily allowed them to continue building. But what would be the point? Instead, he frustrates their attempt for a good reason. To wake them up and to lead them away from their path of sure and sinful destruction. Is this judgment or is it mercy? Yes, it's both. Any judgment of God that God uses... When he looks at what we have done and determines that it's not where he wants us to be, he's doing that before the ultimate judgment that will be ours one day before God. That is indeed merciful. You and I see God's judgment of disruption of our plans and actions as harsh. God sees it as keeping the two-year-old from running out into the street into oncoming, oncoming traffic and then being held tightly by loving arms. Judgment, mercy. What are the towers that God has brought to a halt in your life? Where have you experienced disappointment in a way that has been simply life-changing? Was it a broken relationship? Perhaps an addiction? Some sort of humiliation? Loss of job? Kids? That's a good one. Could God be saying, you know those disappointments, those broken towers in your life? You know the ways that you insist on doing things by your will and your strength for your glory? Lay it down. It's not working for you anyway. You're worn out. You've heard others talk about joy and settledness in their lives, and you have no clue what they're talking about. Lay it down. C.S. Lewis famously said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You and I have indeed been made for another world, for another way of living in this one, as you anticipate the one to come. And friends, it is coming. It's coming. You want to belong. You want to have security. You want to have significance. You want to be connected to greatness. And you don't want them just in a passing for a moment or for a day. You want it right now. You want it for the rest of your life here and for all eternity. 
And they are found in only one place, God himself. Author and pastor J.D. Greer draws all of this together with these words. These are great. You want to be known, valued, and approved of? You are. And it is richer and deeper and lasts longer than the love of any man or woman. Are you trying to be special to someone? You are to him. Are you trying to matter? You matter to him. The security that you work for in life, it's found in his promises. And that fullness that you yearn for in all your pursuits, it is experienced fully in his presence. Which brings us to where all of this is going. Because God has built a better tower. In the coming months, as we move through God's redemptive story, spoiler, spoiler alert, the arc of the story will land us in one well-appointed place. We get a glimpse of it at the beginning of Acts. Because you see, you know that the Lord God came down, and he came down this time differently. He came down as his son, Jesus Christ, to live, breathe, and walk among us, to suffer the horror of crucifixion on the cross for the sake of your sin and mine. And Jesus was raised to life again by the same power and the same breath that brought forward all of creation. And the redemption story didn't stop at that resurrection. Luke sets the scene for us for what was to come when he tells us that the disciples were gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And Luke tells us that many languages were heard that day. And the people there, you heard it, they heard it in their own languages so they could understand the mighty works of God that God had done absolutely everything needed in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Different languages remained, but confusion was replaced with understanding of really, really good news. God's promise to reverse the curse of Babel is fulfilled through those who have laid it all down. They laid it down to strive to live in a different way, to live in his will, by his strength, for his glory. And so then we fast forward to the rest of the story, to the revelation of Jesus Christ, and find that the day will come when we are no longer standing before crumbling towers, but rather before a throne, and we will not be alone. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Amen. Amen. Thanks be to God. <laughs>